Enga mana enga reo koutoura ko tahuri mai ki te kaupapa nei, no mai, haramai. This is Tiahika, our weekly kaupapa Māori series here on RNZ. As the country remains in COVID-19 lockdown level 2, businesses are now open, although customers will have to stick to the social distancing rules. Tourism companies around Aotearoa have now opened their doors, an industry that has been hit hard. This week, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern visited Rotorua and met with tourism and hospitality operators. One such place she visited included Te Puia, or the Māori Arts and Crafts Institute, which has a history that goes back to 1926, where the preservation and fostering of Māori arts was championed by the late politician Sir Apirana Ngata. The preservation of Māori arts was enacted in 1963. The general function was to encourage, foster and promote all types of Māori culture. This included training and the provision of hosting exhibitions and demonstrations, all of which are an integral part of the Institute. In tonight's episode, we delve into the Tiahika archives and feature stories from the popular tourism spot and training ground for many carvers and weavers. Just about from when we could walk, we had our culture in us and weaving was a strong part of that. So it's a strong link to my past, having those queer. And about a kilometre down the road from Tipuya is the Whakarewarewa Māori village. We'll also feature an interview with John Waka, the son of the late Kuru Waka, who was the founding director of Tipuya. And he had a, a good job, good pay, Ten kids, soul-searching and discussion, he decided to, to quit his job and then go and start with Kaki, which, which he did. As far as the institute itself was, uh, was a blank, bare ground. That's coming up in this edition of Tiahika. Names like Makareti Papakura, or Guide Maggie, Rangi Tsiaria Denon, or Guide Rangi, are synonymous with guiding famous people through Whakarewarewa Thermal Valley in the early days of tourism. The industrious nature of local Māori communities was an early example of entrepreneurship. The making of poi and pupu and the carving of po has continued through the years. From the history of the famous guides, it can also be about intergenerational knowledge, the passing down of stories or history associated with Rotorua, in particular the local hapū of Tuhorangi Kingati Wahio. Here at Rotofio Marae, Carl Leonard, a well-known weaver and guide, explains the cultural experience at Tipuya. So, so it all starts from, from our tomokanga over here, from the gateway to the marae. Uh, so one of our ladies would come out to explain to the manuhiri exactly what's going to happen in the procedure, how the, the wero uh, will go. Uh, they will select whoever will be their rangatira to, to take the group on. And so everybody is quite aware of, of what, will, what will happen. Of course, the area is well known for its thermal activity and mud pools. You're actually here on a really good day. What do you mean? Um, 
Well, you see that, that bit of reaction going on over there? Yeah. It's, it's because we had a rain last night. And so uh, now it's the steam mixing with the rainwater and the clay. So it's uh, basically kneading it, and that's why it's giving those uh, large plopping sounds. But, you know, once we've had a bit of dry weather, it just builds up into small cone-like formations, like you see to the side, oh. uh, so that the mud is only active or visible in, in small spots. But uh, when you get a good rain, it dissolves down as much as, say, half a foot. And, uh, of course, it uh, becomes um, rather boisterous. It's called Ngā Mōkai a Koko, the pets of Koko. Now, um, according to some of the stories in Koko's time, and that was meant to be a good three, four hundred years ago, this used to be a flat clay area. Now, a lot of the kids of the village used to actually come and play games here. One of the games was leapfrog. <laughs> so that's why they originally used to nickname it Frog Pool. Because the kids used to play leapfrog here. But today, you know, no one can actually see people playing leapfrog here. So it's, for most parts, we just say because it looks like frogs jumping about. That was one of the stories for, for here for some of the locals. Um, but uh, in reality, the mud pool's about uh, three metres deep, so a good nine feet. Three metres down, there's uh, small cracks in rock. Now... In those cracks, the steam filters through. It strikes, and because the steam has sulphur in it, so the sulphur actually eats away the rock and it turns the rock into clay. Um, because it's steam, it also then mixes with uh, the surface water or rainwater, heats it up, and that in turn mixes with the clay soil, so it's a mixture of steam, rainwater, and clay. But it's taken about, yeah, at least a good 400 years for this mud pool to form. As long as the pressure escapes in this one place, then the vegetation and housing are or the motel or hotel there, are fairly safe. Uh, mud pools don't generally pop open overnight. If they do, it means they're unstable. And like eyes and hot springs, oh. if they suddenly appear as quickly as they appear, they can disappear as well. Okay. But this one is just taking years to, to really form. You know, when you bring the tourists down here, they just, like, amazed what they when they see this? Oh, pretty much, you know. For them, it's like little miniature volcanoes. <laughs> for some, they're just amazed by just, just the, the noise, the sound, the smell. Yeah. You know, the, 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 usually the smell of hydrogen sulfide gets to a lot of them. If they haven't had a good night out, or they had a good <laughs> night out and they're paying for it the next day, not the place for them to be, of course. <laughs> Uh, that's Kereru or Wood Pigeon guys that started to re-erupt in 1998, just to small heights. But sometimes it can actually hit a good 60 feet, say 20 metres. It was quite dominant during the 70s and then it fizzled out. Um, basically, you know, because so many hotels, motels, homeowners were using thermal activity, it depleted a lot of the pressure here. So some of these geysers were becoming affected, and that's why government introduced anyone living within one and a half kilometre radius of this area no longer permitted to use the thermal. But since they've closed a lot of people down, that's one of the results is that geyser there erupting to a good 60 feet in height. Even with our big geyser, Pohutu, which is going in the background on top of the terrace, um, the longest eruption, I think, up into the year 2000 during my time was at least 15 to 16 hours non-stop. But um, that got blown out of the water in the year 2000 when it erupted for over 300 days. So that shows you how much pressure is actually yeah. returning. Um, even, you know, in Rotu itself, you might remember there was one lady and she woke and she had a geyser erupting in her driveway. Is this Dunquito Park? Yeah. Yep. So, you know, that, that's a prime example of it. You know, 40 years prior, I'll say 30 years prior, of course there was a hot spring there. 
but because people were drawing off all the thermal activity before it could get to the spring, it was being drawn away. It sort of fizzled out. They thought it had died. They filled it in. Council approved a uh, you know, building permit, and they built on top of it. Of course, when they started to discourage the use of thermal activity, pressure builds back up again. Thermal starts looking for its uh, um, yep. pressure points of where it can escape. goes back to the same place. So that's what happened. So you see, with a lot of our thermal activity, um, compared to what we had in the 80s, it has actually increased. There are good signs for old guys is that, you know, maybe in another 10, 20 years, there might be something happening on the, on the terrace again. So, Carl, when you talked about people drawing the thermal, what do you mean by that? People were oper- using thermal... Yep. So what, they, what you do is you drill down, you put down a geothermal bore. Um, by using that bore, you can actually draw the water off for bathing pool or for heating. While electricity is good and helps us, it, at the same time, there's a cost and it's proper tūnuku and it just you know, takes away the pressure and destroys things. And so with uh, the geysers here, Prince of Wales feathers on the left, Pohut is the bigger one, now it's, it's only about, what, 15, 20 feet. And then to the right there's the spring here, the pool, Te Horu. Oh. And they're actually, they're all from the same channel or vent underneath the surface. But before it reaches the surface, the channel splits into three. Now even with Te Horu, that, that disappeared... Um, for over 15 years, you actually couldn't. You'd actually have to look down about 10 feet into it to see water. Gosh! And so that actually only started coming back during the 90s. Inside one of the souvenir shops, Carl Leonard explains the whakapapa of some of those famous guides. A lot of the older photographs really go back to previous times, anywhere from guides to fire. Uh, Topaya, she was the heroine of Tarawera one of the heroines of that time when Mount Tarawera erupted. She was part Scottish, half Scottish, half Ngāpuhi. Uh, somehow she ended up down here. She married into one of the, the families from Tarawera, from Tūhaurangi, and established herself down here. So she, she carried on the legacy of guiding uh, around Tarawera and around the pink and white terraces. So guiding was, and really tourism, was a thriving industry there. And that's, you know, that's roughly anywhere from the 1860s onwards. Uh, after Guide Sophia came Guide Maggie, Maggie Papakura. She became quite renowned. Um, but, but they also have her, her sister here, Bella, the writer of Parke Te Fiddle, one of our national anthem poi. Um, and then, of course, then there's the next generation down. So after Maggie came her daughter-in-law, Guide Rangi, and so there's all Guide Rangi's generation. Guide Rangi was also another one born at Tarawera. And then from Guide Rangi, then you come down to another generation, and that's uh, the likes of Guide Bubbles, Bubbles Mihinui, and, and her generation. So there were different ones who became um, outstanding guides. One is because of uh, they took a lot of royalty around with them, uh, as well as you know international film stars and singing stars of the time. So that's how they became renowned. When I came in, it was Bubbles, Bubbles, as well as her auntie, Hepine, um, Hep um, Ransfield. So, you know, there, there were still a number of these old guides still around. And um, it's from them that we, we learnt most of our um, corridor, how to conduct ourselves and how to relate. Um, in our time, when we, when we were guiding, it was really the child of, of guiding from in the village. So um, Whakarewere village and here were um, 
had a co- cohesive relationship back in those times. So uh, even with the guys who taught us, they were from the village itself. And they'd always say to us, well, you know, when you look at this hill and you see these queer and crowa buried here, just remember they're the ones who started this legacy. So, you know, I, I still see uh, the village side being an important part of, of uh, Te Puya and who we are on this side. So we move from being part of the village to being the New Zealand Māori Arts and Crafts Institute and being separate. Then from being New Zealand Māori Arts and Crafts Institute, we moved across to becoming Tipuya. So we, we had a change in name and brand. But Tipuya, you know, is, is commemorative of the fortified village over there in the valley. Um, I still like the old name. Um, so that was a great thing about the arts and crafts during the 1980s is that the majority of our staff members then were queer and komatua. So you had all these old people around. So we went from cultural into commercial. Mm. And, you know, both have a totally different focus. Um, it's really hard to get an even balance where one doesn't try and over-dominate the other. While you might have a good background in marketing, um, or you might have good ideas and or you might have a good background in finance. It's about knowing the nature of what this business actually is, and that's tourism. Tenakwe, Carl Leonard. Tirito is the name of the weaving school at Tipuya. Edna Pahiwa is the daughter of renowned weaver Emily Schuster, who set up the school in the late nineteen sixties. Yes, she did back in sixty-nine, I think it was. But it even started before mum. My queer was Ngātai Bub, who was the only sister of Gaidrangi. And so it was in our... Just about from when we could walk, we had our culture in us, and weaving was a strong part of that. So it's a strong link to my past, having those queer and mum and family members that wove did weaving, did cultural kapahaka, all things like that. So I've had a really lovely upbringing and the legacy that has come through to where I am today. Mm. Mm. We briefly chat, I had a chat before about um, um, there's a, a piece of audio that we have here at Radio New Zealand um, and it's from the 60s and it has your mum talking about um, accessing you know, and this is, what, 20, 30, 40 years ago, accessing flax from Foxton. In the beginning, the Institute had no stand for flax whatsoever. So when I was appointed, uh, the main requirement was flax, especially for the work that I do. And uh, knowing full well that you have to have a lot of flax for any one particular thing. So... Um, we planted stands of flax in various places around Rotorua and in the grounds of the Institute as well. But later on, uh, about five, six years ago, the Foxton flax mills um, stopped working because they found they couldn't compete um, economically against synthetic and nylon fibres. And so they ploughed in all the flax stands that they had there when we found this out, we went to the Institute, sent six workmen down and bought back 40,000 roots. Bringing those seeds to Rotorua and then hand, distributing it in a way to not only you know, replenish the, the harakiki for the school, but to um, give them to Rotorua Marae all um, those Essentially, back then, what she started has thrived well and is supplying the schools well. But of course, 
it's growing too. The school is probably, uh, and the and the needs of our organisation would have tripled from mum's years. So we right now are in the process of replanting again. Oh, really? The paharakeke that mum planted for mm. the organisation isn't big enough to sustain our um, pupu commitments, our weaving, you know, we're, we're always stepping outside. Um, in the way of bringing other um, harakeke from other areas, we have some of Auntie Digger's harakeke here, we have some of the Yates whānau here, local family at Ohinemutu, they had some of their um, pā harakeke dug up, so we bought it up here and we have a plantation of theirs. So it's really good, our families that were given pieces of uh, poo like a plant, they were given by mum and they've planted and thrived and grown, so they're giving them back to us and we're finding places to put them so we can sustain our school. Do you remember at all, um, do you have any memories about you know your mum working within the institute? Did you ever come here as a oh, kid? Oh, we were always up here. I think I first did had a job here in, when I was 15. Yeah. Um, you know, it was just natural that, oh yeah, it wasn't weaving though, back then it was sort of in a weekend job looking after the schools where you never worked in, in the schools on the weekend but someone had to be on site to make sure nothing was tarhied or whatever, <laughs> yeah, and people stayed behind barriers instead of coming to touch, so, oh, okay. and that was way back, but yes, we came up often with mum to different things here, and just worked with her mm. Mm, it, it's, um just got a strong, you know, feelings up here for me and in the past and just making sure what she set down within the schools is carried on. What do you think she set down? What do you think your mum laid well, as a foundation? All, not just here at NZ Mackey, a lot of the um, politics, the universities, Te Wānanga o Aotearoa, Te we all have the same thing in mind to keep our, our craft going you know, to, to keep it going for future generations. So although we're all different organisations, we have the one goal, and that's to preserve our arts and crafts. Mm. So um, that's what she set down. And she had to, and we still do, travel out to Marae to teach. It's just um, comfortable for the older ones, and I'm talking the queer, probably mm. older for them, for us to travel out to the marae where they feel comfortable and teach them there. Nice. And then they can see uh, if it's tūrapa panels or if it's whāriki, they can, we can see and talk to them about where they're going to go. But, you know, have them come in here where the, the tourists are looking at them, they feel whakamā and don't feel right. So yeah. the programmes of travelling out to marae was instigated by mum. Hmm. And that, that's a successful one too. Tēnā koe tutor and weaver Edna Paihewa. Whakarewarewa Village is the home to two haurangi ki Ngāti Wāhiao, Te Pākira Marae and the tradition of the penny divers. A move within the tourism industry is to attract more local visitors in the wake of COVID-19. Tonight we feature this interview again with John Waka and his sister Mahura Wiston, who talk about the work of their late father, Kuru Waka, who was the first director of the New Zealand Māori Arts and Crafts Institute. 
Now, in the early days, Pakake Leonard was charged with setting up the institute. You'll hear John mention his name as Kake. He decided to, to quit his job and then go and start with Kake, which, which he did. As far as the institute itself was, uh, was a blank piece of ground, really, you know, bare, bare, bare ground. So first they had to look for a, uh, a building and they came up with the post office, was it? The post office, was it? From, from or the scout hall? It was the old scout hall. Anyway, they yes. came up with the building and they trucked it onto the site and for all of that beginning work, they had to borrow £70,000 to set it all up and they set it up and then they got ticket boxes for the tourists and that's all the money they ever borrowed, £70,000. From the bank? Yeah, from the bank. They'd never borrowed any more money. Everything else was developed by the tourist dollar wow. or the tourist pound in those days. So, yeah, uh, so it took, it took a, a while for them to set it all up because officially the institute opened in 1965. That's when the first, uh, when the doors opened. And that's when the old man was the director, right. when it opened. Yes, okay. By then, Kake had pulled out. He'd finished. He'd done his job and there were, between he and the old man. They obviously had an understanding. So once it was established, the old man took over and Kake finished. That's as we recall. And so, um, 10 kids, your dad's got this flash new job. Yeah. How was that growing up? Were you t- doing the tickets or, you know, helping no, no, out? No, 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 I was away then. I oh, was, okay. I was away. Uh, I was farming. Yeah, but the Mahara and them were here at the time. Well, you went away too, eh? I had just come back from Australia. I'd been um, teaching in Australia oh. for mm. three years. I came home, then I got married. And, yeah, it was in my first, second year of marriage when the institute was set up, and I remember uh, they had little ticket boxes for the ticket takers who were all the ladies of the of the pa. So Dad always wanted to ensure that the people working for them at the Māori Arts and Crafts were people from the pa. You know, so that to give them employment and you know security for their children, so they had all these um, these ticket boxes set up at strategic points at the two entrances: one from Fakarewarewa Village from Te Pakira, and one from, at the top here at the Model Pa. And they were just like those little um, sentry boxes that you yep. see outside Buckingham Palace. <laughs> so you just sit in yes, there, you step in the door, and hello, there was a seat and a little bench and a little window for the people to stop at and those were the the boxes that our our ladies worked from mm. for years. So we talked briefly about um there was obviously there was no tipuya back then, it was just one whole It was known as the Maori Arts and Crafts Institute. It actually developed in from our tour through Fakarewarewa. Everything started at this end mm. and then went. But then it became, as I say, prior to that, people could just wander through the uh, model par as it was known. But, of course, once the institute started, then they had to put ticket boxes and so everybody paid to go through both ends, mm. you know, and so that's it, that all developed so that the, uh, everybody who went through was paying.
Mm. And then, of course, it was set up by the government you know, mm. to set up the schools, the carving school and the weaving schools. And then that's when they had their first intake of uh, apprentices, apprentice carvers. Um, they had seven carvers, from one from each tribal district. And the idea was that each carver would learn the seven different styles of carving for the different areas. So if carvers were asked to carve down at Ngaitahu, then they would all understand the the idiosyncrasies of their arts down there and they would all be able to carve a meeting house for Ngaitahu or up north or wherever. So they had to learn all the styles and the master carver was John Tayapa, of course. And right at the beginning, he invited them all to bring their their lunch and that into the room where they carved and had a karakia to a whakanoa and then they had a had a cup of tea in where they carved to take all the tapu off the carving so that there would be no no fear of any transgression on the Maori arts. So, it, yeah, so that's what, uh, that's the reason he did it. So that opened it all up. So do you think it was a difficult job for you or challenging job for your father back in those days? He was a very forward-thinking man. And, you know, a lot of the people had set ideas. They, they had set ways of doing things. They were used to the old way of doing things. And, of course, you know, time moves on. You have to progress. And some people don't like change and don't like progress. But he battled on regardless. And he, he was passionate. He was really passionate about this place and about the people. And he loved his job. Absolutely. He was gutted when he had to retire because he turned 65, and that was the policy. Oh, really? I was going to say, how, is that how you... Yeah. That was the policy. That was oh. the policy. He had to retire. It was government policy that you had to retire at 65. And, I mean, he had years and years of life left in him, and he thought, oh. He was 82 when he died, but he used to help out anyway. You know, after that, uh, mm. he was always being called on to do something. And, of course, he was work, living here and also being part of here. He was always involved in something. Mm. And, and if they had a hitch up there, he'd go up and sort it out. Tēnā korua, John Waka and his sister Mahora Whiston, who talked about the legacy of their father, Kuru Waka, that was recorded at the Whakarewarewa Living Village in Rotorua in 2015. Now, for more information about Te Puia, you can find useful links at our webpage rnz.co.nz forward slash tiahika. Koera tō tātou nei hōtaka mō tēnei wā. That's the show for this Sunday. Make sure to join us next week. To get in touch, email tiahika at rnz.co.nz or on social media, rnz te ao Māori. Ko te manako ia kia haumaru tā koutou noho tahi hoki mai a te wiki e tū mai nei Māori tū, Māori ora. Kiko 
Hoy 